Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Geraldine Gutfin. Today, I'm thrilled to host Jessica Margolin, a professor of religion, law, and history, and the Ruth Ziegler Chair in Jewish Studies at the University of Southern California. Her research focuses on the history of Jews and Muslims in North Africa and the Mediterranean, with a particular emphasis on law. In today's episode, we will talk about her recent monograph, The Shamama Case, which was published in 2022 by Princeton University Press. Jessica Margolin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you today. So first of all, uh, please tell us a bit more about yourself and how you came to this particular project. So my main research focuses on the legal history of Jews in North Africa and the Mediterranean, mainly in the 19th century. And that's my favorite century. And I came to this case sort of by accident. I was actually doing research for a totally different thing. And I came across a book about the testament of Nisim Shamama, the the will um, of Nisim Shamama, written in Italian by this rabbi, Elia Benamozeg, who lived in Livorno. And, you know, it was one of those things where I was basically trying to follow up on him for a footnote, essentially, or what became a footnote. And I went down the rabbit hole and I found more and more about this guy, Nisim Shamama. And I thought, wow, this guy's really interesting. And as I looked more and more, I I, um, got really intrigued because it seemed like one of these cases that was almost sort of tailor-made for my interests. It was about a North African Jew, but it played out across the Mediterranean. And it had to do with all of these different legal systems at once, right? Tunisian law, Islamic law, Jewish law, Italian law. And I was really um, just excited at the prospect of working on a project like this. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about how... um in terms of the, so the interest obviously overlap with the first one, but what are the directions that you took in this particular project that differed from your first project? So if you could talk a little bit more about what your first book was about and how it sets you up for thinking about those particular questions that you delve into in, 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 the, in the Shimama book. Yeah, absolutely. So, so my first book was a history of Jews in the Moroccan legal system in the 19th and early 20th century. Um, and it wasn't a micro history. I ended up writing a lot about one particular family, but I didn't start out doing that. Um, it was more just sort of how the archival trails that I ended up following worked out um, and how I sort of chose to structure the book. Um, but I was I got interested in Mediterranean history sort of as I was finishing my first book. Um, and I got interested in this kind of transnational or transregional history, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and thinking about, I mean, in some ways it comes down to the, the idea that I wanted 
people who weren't already interested in North African Jews to think that maybe North African Jews might be interesting. Um, and the, the number of people who are inherently interested in North African Jews is fairly small. So it was also kind of self-interested in the sense that I wanted to convince people who, you know, yes, thought Europe was important, you know, maybe thought Mediterranean history was important, um, but but really hadn't done much with North Africa and North African Jews and say, actually, you know, North African Jews have something to tell us more broadly about this entire region. Um, so that was something I was sort of already interested in. So when I found Nisim Shamama and realized that it was this legal case that married my interest in in um, legal history in North African Jews and this budding interest in Mediterranean history and in connecting the Mediterranean, um, I sort of thought, oh, wow, this is perfect. But uh, as as so often happens, you know, when I began working on the on the on this project, I, I really had no idea why it was going to matter beyond that I was interested in it. I mean, I spent many years <laughs> reading these archives and reading the the sources and not really knowing what I was going to say about it. Right? I would say that um, the other thing that that really caught my attention about this project, um, and, in, and in some ways, which really differed from my first book, is that my first book was really about just trying to get a handle on how Jews navigated law in Morocco. But in a pretty big way, I was really looking at the whole country. I was looking at a big span of time, basically 1830 to 1930 approximately. Um, and I was, I, you know, I, I was working off of a pretty thin existing secondary literature. So I did a lot of legwork just trying to figure out like what did the legal system look like? You know, how did people navigate various different kinds of courts? And that was great and thrilling. But what it sacrificed was a sense of personalities, right? I didn't get much into the kind of psyches of the historical characters that I was working on. And that was largely about the archives that I had to work with. Um, and one of the things that I remember very vividly, vividly from starting to work on the Shamama case, when I first got to the archives in Tunisia, which was kind of my first um, big research stop. Uh, I, I knew from some of the little existing secondary literature and from talking to colleagues that there were archives on Shamama in Tunisia and the National Archives of Tunisia in Tunis. Um, so I planned a research trip. And, you know, when you do that at the beginning of a new project, you just never know what you're going to find. I thought maybe there would be a few boxes. Maybe there would be 10 boxes. And when I showed up in the archives and saw the finding aid and realized that there was something on the order of like, 50 to 60 boxes just about Shamama, I was really sort of blown away and and um, realized that this was a much bigger project than I necessarily had thought it might be. When I very at the very beginning, I thought maybe I would just write an article on this, and and it was sitting in those archives and reading reading some of the correspondence and reading some of the legal briefs. I started to think, wow, these people have real personalities that I can see coming off of the page. And I think already at that early stage, I kind of got a glimmer of wanting to tell this as a story. And that really differed from my first book, which was a much more kind of academic, thematic, you know, um, I had some stories, but they were, they functioned more like anecdotes uh, than like an overarching narrative that framed the whole book. So that was another big um, sort of thing that attracted me to the project in the first place was that once I got a sense of the possibilities for telling this as a story, that really captured my imagination.
And I have to say, as someone who recently published, uh, re recently read the book, that there's a very novelesque quality to it. Definitely, we get to know the characters, and also the way you frame the book. You really, you know, retrace. You know, the first part trace the love, the life of Nisim Shimama and his close relatives. Then you get into the trial. Then towards the end of the book, you also reflect on, you know, what happened to to the descendants. So you really kind of bring us into the this world that's populated with very big characters. Um, and the other thing I have to say is that it, it was really interesting to me how through this micro history, you really tell a very global story. And I think it's precisely the micro historical approach that allowed you to, to do this um, very successfully. So I wonder if you can uh, tell us more about these characters. Who is this Nishim Shimama that you're talking about? And who are all the other characters who, who you know, who make, you know, who make up the, the bulk of the, the book? Um, tell us more about that. Yeah. Absolutely. So Nisim Shabama, he he was just this really larger than life character. That's the way I come to think about him after spending so many years with him. Um, he he came from fairly humble origins. He's born in Tunis, um, not like dirt poor. You know, his family was educated. He had um, ancestors who had even published books, um, sort of traditional Jewish books. Uh, but he did not want to go the scholarly route. He clearly was sort of made out to be basically in government. And he got his start under the patronage of a man named Mahmoud ibn Ayyad, who was a sort of already a fairly high-ranking government official um, and who himself acted as a tax farmer for various regions. And Nisim's first official position was a tax farmer um, of a region called Arad, which is where actually where the, the island of Jerba is located, it, 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 which has a very important Jewish community, although I don't think that's at all why he was appointed to as the tax farmer. And maybe I'll just say a couple words about tax farming for those who aren't familiar. It's a pretty common form of organizing taxation, especially in the pre-modern world, but well into the 19th century, where basically an official pays for the privilege to collect the taxes of a particular place. And then they get to collect essentially as much as they want. They have to give a certain amount to the government, but whatever they collect above that, they get to keep them themselves. So the art of tax collecting is to collect enough so that you're making a profit, but not so much so that everybody becomes impoverished and then there are no taxes the following year. And for reasons that I don't entirely understand, but you know, clearly this was the case, Nisim Shamama was very good at this. He really hit that sweet spot between making money, but not impoverishing the regions that he was the in charge of. So he basically got tax farm after tax farm after tax farm. And clearly he had a kind of political sensibility. He became closer and closer to Ibn Ayyad. He ended up becoming close to Ibn Ayyad's boss, Mustafa Khaznadar, who was the prime minister of Tunisia for many, many years. Um, and through these relationships of patronage, Nisim really just rose in the ranks of, of the Tunisian government until he became the chief the, what's called the receiver general, and the basically chief tax officer of the whole country. Plus, he got all of these sort of monopolies on imports and exports. Um, he had the monopoly on the customs house, so he was able to kind of collect all the customs duties and, again, keep the extra for himself. Um, and this is really the origin of his wealth, and this made him very, very wealthy um, and very powerful. I mean, he also became a high-ranking sort of official in the Jewish community. He became what's called the Qa'id Yehud, who's basically the secular head of the Jewish community of Tunis. Um, 
and, uh, you know, had an enormous amount of kind of influence in the Jewish community. But all of this sort of went south in 1864, which was a point uh, when Tunisia was starting to um, get involved in the international debt scene. This is kind of relevant since as we record this, the United States is involved in discussions about our own debt ceiling, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but this was a period when countries, uh, governments in North Africa and the Middle East were just starting to contract international loans. Sovereign states were just starting to contract international loans. Um, and, you know, this was happening elsewhere in the developing world. Mexico, um, other countries in Latin America were contracting these international loans to basically pay for infrastructure, railroads, telegraph lines, steamships, navies, things like that. And Tunisia wanted these things as well, right? They wanted to modernize. Um, but the loan that they contracted was very unfavorable, and they turned out to have a lot of trouble pay- making the payments. So they did what you know any government does when it's having trouble coming up with money. They raised taxes, and this was extremely unpopular and basically sparked a civil war. So in the spring of 1864, there was a civil war which was all about, or at least which was ostensibly about taxation. And here you have Nisim Shamama, a Jew, as the head of taxes in the entire country. So he clearly feels like his life is in danger. By the end of May, he basically thinks that he has to get out of the country. Um, And he leaves quite precipitously with his, the the woman who is essentially the closest he ever came to having a daughter. So Nisim Shamama was married three times, but he was never able to have his own children. And instead, he kind of adopted, there is no formal adoption in Jewish law or in Islamic laws, it turns out, but um, he basically, for all intents and purposes, adopted his great niece, a woman named Aziza. And Aziza lived with him. He helped her marry. um, And Aziza had a baby. And when her baby was born, she named him Nisim after her great uncle. Uh, and when this baby, whom I call Nisim Jr. in the book, nobody called him Nisim Jr., but just to make it clear who he is, um, when he was four days old, Nisim Sr., Aziza, her husband, and the baby, and a couple kind of close servants boarded a boat headed to France. And that's where they started out. They got off in Marseille, they took a train, they settled in Paris, and they were there for seven years. And Nisim was clearly, you know, at the beginning, probably intending to settle. And perhaps he had some idea that he might go back. But relatively soon, he sort of started to fall out with his patron, Mustafa Hasnadar in particular, in Tunis. He was kind of cut out from the inner circle. Um, Although he seems to have basically hung out with Tunisians in in Paris, and he never learned French, at least as far as I know. Um, but then, you know, after being in Paris for seven years, he bought property, he bought these two very lovely townhouses in a very Tony neighborhood, still a pretty Tony neighborhood in the Cézien, today it's in the Cézien, the 16th arrondissement. Um, then the, the commune comes to Paris, the Paris commune of 1871. And you have, again, basically civil war in the streets of Paris. And Nisim says, no way, this is not for me. And he moves one more time. And this time he goes to Livorno, um, which is the port of Tuscany in Italy. Italy at the time was a very new country, right? It had only really come together in the 1850s. You know, the um, the country was still very much in the process of formation. Rome had only become part of the new state of Italy literally the year before. And he settles down in Livorno and 
again, he's probably expecting to spend a good long time there, but two days later, uh, sorry, two years later, quite suddenly, he dies. And that's in some ways really what makes the book that I ended up writing, um, because what I find most fascinating, his life is very fascinating, but what I find even more fascinating than his life is what happens after he dies. And there's a big fight over all of this money that he's accumulated. So he accumulated all of this money while he was in the Tunisian government. But then when he left Tunisia, he invested it very wisely and it grew and grew and grew until he became not the richest man in Europe by any means, but certainly among the very richest, right? He was really, really very wealthy and he had no children. So everybody was sort of waiting to see what was going to happen to his estate. And because of the nature of Italian law, it all came down to a question of his nationality. He wrote a will um, in Paris, in Judeo-Arabic, which by the way, was probably the only, as far as I know, the only language in which he was literate. Um, And this will was discovered shortly after he died. And in the will, he left half of his fortune to Aziza and to her baby Nisim. And then the other half he split between two nephews. But there were also, of course, all kinds of ideas about what would happen to his estate before the will was known about. Um, And many people assumed that it would be apportioned according to Jewish law, or at least according to Jewish law, as it is set out in the Hebrew Bible, which says that a man with no living descendants, no children, um, should have his estate apportioned among the closest male relatives. And his closest male relatives were three nephews, two of whom he had given some money, you know, a quarter each of the estate in the will, and the third of which he had cut out entirely. And of course, the third of these nephews, a man named Qaid Mumu, happened to also be Haziza's father, from whom she'd been estranged for a very long time. So already you also get a sense of these very complicated family dynamics or family drama, however you want to call it. And that's when the kind of legal drama of the book begins because the the question becomes, well, is the will valid or not? And before the, the Italian courts can answer that, they have to know which law to apply. And because of the way the Italian civil code is written, the law that they apply is Nisim Shamama's national law. But of course, it's not so easy because they don't know what his nationality is. Did he die Tunisian, in which case Jewish law would apply to the estate, in which case probably the will would be thrown out? Or did he die Italian? This is, he had actually naturalized as an Italian in Paris, but then it wasn't clear if he had sort of really become Italian or if he had failed to sort of um, go through some of the bureaucratic processes necessary? Or had he lost his Tunisian nationality, but not become an Italian and thus was stateless? And so these are the kind of, you know, questions about citizenship or nationality that really animate the legal historical part of the book. Um, And that ended up being what I, you know, as I, I was sort of saying, when I started out working on the book, I really didn't know what it was that was going to be interesting about it beyond that I was interested in it. Um, but once I sort of realized that that the heart of the legal case was this question of nationality or citizenship, I realized that that was really the what was at stake in the broader, um, or, or, or that was the sort of way in which this case can shine light uh, on Jewish history, on Mediterranean history, on North African history, and on legal history. So I want to pause on that on on this particular question of citizenship and nationality a little bit, because I I agree with you. I think you make a very compelling case that the Shimama story is um, a great way to rethink 
um, those questions in the context of the Mediterranean. And also it, it helps us rethink the history of Europe and nationality in Europe. So um, I want to start with a quote from the book, which I thought uh, raises so many questions and is very thought provoking, um, which is on page 157. You write, legal, legal belonging was determined not by a series of logical deductions, but rather by the interest of governments and individuals. And this, this concept of legal belonging is central to the book. You talk about it a lot. It's a, it's, a, it's a concept that was influenced by other historians, but that you really make yours throughout the book. So I wanted you to reflect a bit on this relationship between nationality, citizenship, and this concept of legal citizen, uh, sorry, legal belonging, and also the very fuzzy concept of identity. So maybe one way to start this question is to think about how Nisim continued to relate to Tunisia after he left. So we, can, you know, we, you can't speak on his behalf. Who knows how he thought of himself? It's a very difficult question to answer. But what are the, what is the evidence that we have that he obviously kept strong ties with this part of his um, story, personal story, and then moving away from his case. Um, how does this concept of legal belonging, which you use throughout the book, help us understand what happened in the 19th century, especially in the second half of the 19th century, in regards to citizenship and nationality, which are at the time were concepts that were not fully fixed? I mean, you, one could argue that to this day they're not fixed, but even more so in the 19th century. That's, you know, the beginning of the, the field of modern international law. Those are very new terms in the 19th century. So if you could kind of walk us through the 19th century part of it and then kind of moving away from the 19th century to today and how we can think through this particular problematics through this uh, analytical category of legal belonging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, maybe I'll start with this term identity. Um, because I think actually, in some ways, one of the things that I came to rather early in this project was that identity wasn't going to be something that I was going to be able to say anything definitive about. I have my own guesses about how Nisim Shamala thought about himself, right? Um, and I, I, at a few points in the book, I kind of venture a sort of, you know, hypothesis about what he was thinking, right? Like what, what was going through his head. But in fact, one of the things that I ended up realizing was so powerful about writing a legal history was that you can talk a lot about how people's lives get interpreted without needing to know how they actually themselves necessarily thought about their lives. And I, you know, I think that the other thing that I, really came away with by the end was just this conviction that identity was not really an important category for somebody like Nisim. Clearly he felt Jewish. That I'm very comfortable saying. You know, Judaism was a big part of his life. He was involved in Jewish communities. He was, as far as I know, at least somewhat observant. I mean, I, you know, I, I have a have I don't have any evidence of whether he ate strictly kosher or anything like that, but he was clearly, he went to synagogue, he gave a lot of charity, he supported Hebrew publishing, he bought Jewish books, and he collected these sort of, you know, very impressive Jewish books. And, you know, he was, he was unquestionably Jewish. And he also unquestionably retained these ties to Tunisia, right? Both in terms of his um, language, as I said, Judeo-Arabic or Arabic remained his only spoken language, as far as I know, throughout his life. Um, he surrounded himself with Tunisian Jews in particular, 
his immediate family, Aziza, her husband and their and her son, um, but also secretaries whom he brought over from Tunis, a couple rabbis who eventually came over and joined him and lived with him in Paris and um, sort of other hangers on and then other Tunisian Jews that he would meet. And, you know, it, even in Livorno, Livorno has this really um important role in the 19th century as a kind of node in the Mediterranean, especially for Jewish communities, connecting Jews in North Africa and the Middle East to Italy. And so there were a bunch of these sort of Tunisian Livornese Jews who would end up in Livorno, at least for short periods. So at Shamama's funeral, right, two of these Tunisian Livornese Jews were the pallbearers, right, who, who carried his casket. So this this was very important to him. Um, and and he had a lot of contact with non-Jewish Tunisians um, or or non-Tunisians who were also in the service of the Tunisian government, like a French guy, um, Jules de Lesseps, who was actually the brother of the guy who created the Suez Canal, um, and uh, you know this sort of um, Christian from Lebanon who ended up being in the service of the Bay of Tunis. Right, he he kind of acquired these multinational or multi cultural types, as you might say. Um, I, I think that what I came to appreciate about the history of nationality and citizenship is that it does, I think, kind of offer an alternative to a discourse of identity, um, in part because people had to think about nationality and citizenship, but they didn't necessarily need to think about it in terms of identity. They didn't necessarily need to think about it in terms of how people felt. Um and, you know, so to, to get to the question of, you know, terminology, what is the difference between nationality and citizenship? And then this term that I introduced, legal belonging, I spent so much time when I was writing this book, really just confused about which terms to use and what they meant at different times. And it, it was really one of these aha moments when I realized that the people themselves, you know, the lawyer, I mean, not dumb people, lawyers, judges, and Tunisian officials, North African Jews, all of them were themselves confused about the meanings of these terms, nationality and citizenship. It wasn't just me. And that's when I realized, as you said, that actually, oh, these terms were in the process of being formed. And I think part of the reason that it took me so long to get there is that so often, you know, when, when a term comes to settle in a particular meaning at some point, then people use it that way and then retroactively apply it to earlier periods. And that's what the historiography had been doing. So I just thought, oh, okay, well, nationality means this. So, you know, when they're using it in 1870, that's also what it means. But nationality in particular, like the way it, the way it generally, um, uh, has come to be understood by jurists, really since, you know, the late 19th century is to mean a kind of bare bones legal belonging, a bare bones attachment to a state. So a person can be a national, but that doesn't necessarily give them any rights. They can't necessarily vote. They don't even necessarily have civil rights, right? Citizen, on the contrary, is generally thought of as somebody who has rights, political rights and civil rights. Um, And this, again, by 1900, this was pretty well accepted. But what I really discovered in the midst of doing research for this book is that in 1870, 
actually the meanings were quite up in the air. And some people use nationality to mean citizenship and some people used citizenship to mean nationality. And some people used other terms like subjecthood um, or in French in particular, there's a term, the quality of being French, le qualité de français, which was actually much more ubiquitous into the 1870s. I mean, if you look at the le- the legislation from Algeria and the famous Senatus Consult of 1865, the, the term is qualité de français, which means, which ended up meaning French nationality, but the, the term nationalité française wasn't even used. Nas- French nationality wasn't even used at that time. And that's when I kind of had this sort of realization that sticking to the terms as they came to be fixed later made no sense for this jumbly period when there were all sorts of different meanings um, sort of coexisting at the time. And I I ended up coming up with my own term, which legal belonging, which I did in order to precisely express that there's a range of ways in which people can belong to the state. And some of them, you know, are sort of what we think of today as citizenship involving full rights. Some of them are more like what we think of today as nationality, a kind of bare bones tie. And some of them are even more ten, uh, sort of um, uh, thin and, um, you know, easily broken, right? And that's especially true in North Africa, where you have all of these forms of consular protection, where people fall under the jurisdiction of, say, the French consulate, but aren't actually French, right? Um, and, And this really freed me to think about the history of nationality, what we usually call nationality or citizenship, in a way that felt true to my sources, that didn't feel like I was trying to wrestle everything into the existing categories. Um, and that also really, I think, uh, highlighted, which is which I felt like by the time I figured all this out, I felt like it was important to highlight the extent to which none of this was fixed, the extent to which these categories were really up for grabs and in the process of being determined. So actually, let's return to the Nisim Shimama case, because I think this is a great framework for understanding what happened with the case. So what are the claims here that are being made by the different parties? Like, who are the different parties and what are they claiming in terms of where oh, who's uh, belonging, like we belong to, who Nisim Shimama belong to? Like, let's move away from national citizenship, but this term of legal belonging. So according to the different parties in the trial, where did he belong? Which place, which country did he belong to? What were the different arguments that were made at the time? Right, yeah. So basically four different possibilities were put forward. Um, The first was that he was Italian. As I mentioned, he got this decree of naturalization. And even though he didn't do the things that it said he had to do in the decree in order to kind of basically activate it, Nobody seemed to have noticed during his lifetime. So he lived his life as an Italian. He got Italian paperwork from the Italian consulate in Paris. He got it when he declared his domicile in Livorno after he moved there. He said he was an Italian and everybody said, okay. And, you know, this was sort of duly noted down by the notary public. Um, And so when immediately upon his dying, most people assumed he was Italian and that meant that Italian law would apply to the estate. And that was very good news for Aziza because it was very clear to everybody that if Italian law was in charge, if Italian law had jurisdiction, then uh, Nisim Jamama's will would be respected. Aziza and her child Nisim would inherit half of the fortune. But it was mainly Kaid Momo, this third nephew who got cut out of the will, who 
in consultation with the Tunisian government. He was at the time an official in the Tunisian government. He was very close to Mustafa Khaznadar, who was Nisim's former patron. And he basically sort of uh, found, like, encouraged the government to look for a way to invalidate the will. And the first thing that they realized was that Nisim Shamama had not completed the paperwork to become an Italian. So then they said, aha, well, maybe he never became an Italian, in which case he was still Tunisian. And if he was still Tunisian, then Jewish law should apply. The will would not sort of be considered kosher, essentially under Jewish law. And Aziza would get nothing, but this guy, Kaid Momo, would get a third of the estate. And the, the the Tunisian government was very excited about this, in part because the Tunisian government had all of these claims on Nisim Shamama's estate. By this point, the Tunisian government had started accusing Nisim Shamama of having embezzled a whole lot of money when he left Tunisia in 1864. Whether he did or not, I'm still up in the air. He probably did embezzle something. I mean, it seems very likely that he did. Um, exactly how much. The Tunisian government was never able to prove it. They were never able to bring any kind of formal documentation. And this is in part why actually they did what they did. If they had had the documents to prove their case about being owed money by the estate, they would have just gone to the Italian courts and said, here's our, you know, please give us our money. But since they didn't do that, they instead decided to do a kind of backdoor deal where they went to Kaid Momo and they said, here, sign this document saying that you'll give us a quarter of your portion of the estate and that will cover all of Nisim's debts. And they wanted to do the same thing with the two other nephews. They they didn't manage, they didn't succeed. Um, but once Momo basically couldn't say no, once Momo had signed this document, the Tunisian government became a party to the case. So it was Momo and the Tunisian government arguing together that Nisim had never become Italian, that he had died a Tunisian and thus the Jewish law played to the case. Then a third possibility arose in the course of negotiations, which was that Nisim Shamama had left Tunisia and thus essentially expatriated himself. He is no longer Tunisian, but he had not become Italian and thus he had died stateless. This was at a moment when statelessness was still really a legal oddity. It became pretty widespread in the early 20th century, especially following World War I and the breakup of all of these empires. But in the 19th century, it was something that jurists basically thought was this kind of weird thing that would only happen under very exceptional circumstances, kind of like this one. Um, but still, it was a surprising case to be made, right? So when the first, it was the first um, court of first instance, the first court that heard the the Shamama case that ruled that Nisim Shamama had died stateless, and everybody was a little taken aback. And then in the course of the discussions, a fourth possibility emerged, which was that the national law that should be applied to Nisim, right, the national law that should have jurisdiction over the case. Um, when I say jurisdiction, I mean the national law that, that should be applied to the will, right? Everybody agreed that Italian courts had jurisdiction, but the question was which law were they supposed to apply? So so the, the possibility that Nisim as a Jew had a national law, which was Jewish law, was raised by um, mainly by a North African Jew, another fascinating character, a guy named Eliyahu al-Maliyah or Leon al-Milik, um, who was this Jew originally from Algeria who had made his life in Tunisia and who kind of uh, volunteered his services and became essentially fixer for the Tunisian government. Um, and got very involved in the case, wrote his own legal briefs, and and really doubled down on this argument that Nisim Shamama's 
national law was Jewish law, but it was picked up by some of the Italian lawyers working for this side of the case. So those were the four options, that he had died Italian, Tunisian, stateless, or that Jewishness was his nationality and Jewish law was his national law. So I'm very interested in all of those theories, but especially the one that holds that he was Jewish by nationality, that Islam was Jewish and that he was a Jew by nationality. I wonder if you can reflect a little bit more on this and how, what were their arguments that were made to support that theory? Um, how was it received by the other parties in the case? And also, again, moving away from, from Nisim Shemama, um, you know, based on your understanding of um, the place of Jews in uh, in North Africa more generally, how does this idea of, you know, Jewish being a nationality relate to other case studies that you've studied um, previously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, the thing, maybe I'll actually start from the broader context, because in some ways, when it came to it, it was surprising that people hadn't already thought of Jewish law as a national law, in the sense that everybody kind of assumed that Jews were a nationality, right? That Jews were widely described as a nation, Jewishness was widely described as nationality, and this was by anti-Semites and philo-Semites by non-Jews and Jews, right? This was just the language of nationality and nationalism in the 19th century. Of course, this is very well known in Zionist historiography because it was the fact that Jews thought of themselves as a nation that led them to adopt a nationalist ideology, right? And the thing that was different about Zionism was that it married the idea of Jews being a nation to the idea that Jews should have their own state, right? Before that, Jews had thought they were a nation, but didn't necessarily think they needed their own state. So in some ways, that, you know, that is totally unsurprising. Given that everybody thought Jews were a nation, it's unsurprising that Jewishness should be thought of as a nationality for legal purposes, and thus that Jewish law should be thought of as a national law. Of course, when it came down to it, the lawyers on both sides, the jurists on both sides, were very divided because the main thing that distinguished Jews from other nations is that Jews not only did not have a state, but hadn't had a state for centuries, for millennia, right? Whereas Poland wasn't a state, but everybody kind of understood that there there had been a Polish state and that there was a Polish nationalist movement that wanted to recreate a Polish state, right? And there was no Jewish nationalist movement really in the 1870s at all. This was before 20 years before Herzl really kind of got Zionism going. And this was before even the non-Zionist um, Jewish nationalist movements like Bundism, which also only got going in the late 1890s. So this was a period when, on the one hand, everybody thought of Jews as a nation. On the other hand, there was no idea of tying Jews to a particular Jewish state. And so that was the tripping point. And for some of the jurists, they said, well, yes, okay, so Jews don't have a state, but they're still a nation, and this should still be considered a national law. And others basically said, no, no, you have to have a state, right? You, you, when we say nationality in the context of international law, what we mean is a state, right? A nationality tied to a state. In some ways, the, the most interesting sort of figure in this particular debate was this guy who was really at the center of the case, Pasquale Stanislao Mancini, um, who was the preeminent Italian jurist of international law. He really made his name tying nationalism to 
ideas of international law at the very beginning of the development of international law as a field of study, right? As you mentioned, this was before international law was kind of established. In fact, the same year that Nisim died in 1873 was the year that the Institut du droit international, the Institute of International Law, which was the first professional association of jurists of international law, was created. And who was the first president? Mancini. Mancini was, even before Nisim was on the picture, Mancini was central because he was the one who wrote the law in the Italian civil code saying that somebody who dies in Italy, his estate has to be adjudicated according to his national law. This was what was known as the nationality principle. And this was really one of his ways of marrying his nationalist ideals with international law, because it was saying that national la- nationality is so important that it should be respected no matter where a person is. So even if an Italian dies in France, Italian law should still be applied to his estate. And similarly, we should reciprocate if a French person dies in Italy, we'll apply French law to his estate. Now, of course, he wasn't imagining a Tunisian Jew, right? He wasn't imagining that being a kind of test case. But when the when the Shamama case got going, of course, who better than to argue it than Mancini? And indeed, Aziza hired Mancini to argue that Nisim Shamama had died in Italian. But this meant that the father of the nationality principle, the sort of most nationalist of all international lawyers, who thought that nothing was more important than nationality, also had to argue that Jewishness was not really a real nationality. And this was particularly hard because Mancini made his name, his breakout book, which was published in 1851, was the whole argument of it was that international law should be based not on states, but on nationalities. And thus, Italians and Italy should be recognized as a nationality, even though an Italian state didn't yet exist. In some ways, that seems like the perfect sort of preparation for saying, well, Jews don't have a state, but they have a nationality. So let's recognize Jewishness as a kind of nationality. But of course, Mancini had to argue the opposite. He didn't want Jewish law to apply. He wanted Italian law to apply. And so he had to do all these kind of intellectual gymnastics. And indeed, he spends dozens and dozens of pages in his legal briefs, basically trying to say why Judaism is not really a nationality. And he has all of, you know, these long sort of diatribes about, well, Jews have always been wanderers and Jews have always been guests and Jews have never, you know, really belonged. On the other hand, because of that, they also don't really retain their own nationality. They become, and and in some ways Mancini was not, he was not an anti-Semite at all, actually. He was really committed to the idea that Jews were full members of this new Italian national state. He was very anti-clerical, which tended to go along with being a kind of, you know, um, a fighter for the inclusivity of non-Catholics. And he, you know, he himself had worked pro bono for Jews, defending them um, in cases where he thought anti-Semitism was in play. And this, you know, so this is not, he was not coming at this from an anti-Semitic perspective, um, Although I think he really did believe that Judaism wasn't quite a nationality in the way Italian was, you know, Italianness or Italian and was, um, and and of course that gets at some of the bigger questions about how do Jews fit into this broader landscape of thinking with nationality and and this sort of nationalist moment. And that's part of what I find so interesting about the Shamama case is that it's happening right at this time when nationalism is becoming, you know, a kind of universal way of thinking about the world and ordering the world. And Jews 
never quite fit, right? On the one hand, everybody thinks of them as a nation. On the other hand, well, then, you know, is a Jew an Italian, right? Is, is an Italian Jew a member of this new Italian nation state and thus an Italian national? And how do you square that with the kind of presumptions of Jews difference? And all of this comes to the fore um, in the arguments about Shamama's nationality. So I want to take this point further, actually, from a more like historiographical perspective, uh, because obviously the history of citizenship and nationality is it's a, there's a huge literature. But I feel like Jews, there's not much place for Jews in that literature. So how do you see your work kind of contributing to the, this literature and helping us see things that we haven't necessarily seen previously mm-hmm. through cases like yeah. the one that you've studied? No, that's a great question. I mean, I think that basically what I came down to is the idea that as somebody working on a microhistory, I'm not going to do a great job of showing change over time. I'm not going to be able to kind of make these really big claims about, you know, that that go beyond one particular case. But what I was able to do is precisely kind of um, maybe use this case to disrupt the ways that we have tended to think about the history of citizenship and nationality. Um, and so that's part of what I was saying about, you know, just needing to get out of the mindset that I came to it with, which was that citizenship means this and nationality means that. And that's what it means always, you know, throughout the 19th century. And just realizing that these terms themselves have a history. And I think that, you know, in this, in that sense, Jews are really, I mean, they're not the only ones, but they're particularly good at helping us disrupt our sort of preconceptions um, about what this history should look like or what we think it looks like. And precisely because they're these kind of proverbial square pegs that never quite fit into the round holes of nationality, of nationalism, of citizenship, etc. And I think the thing that, um, you know, I was sort of particularly interested in in using Jews to do was to to try to think about a conversation about belonging that was taking place really across the Mediterranean. In other words, not just, you know, Europeans coming up with modern nationality law and then exporting it to North Africa, but rather both sides of the Mediterranean. So in this case, Egypt and Tunisia, really grappling with, well, how do Jews fit into nationality, right? Are Jews full nationals? Are they somehow not nationals? And so in the course of the of the conversation, in the course of the legal dispute about Nisim Tramama's nationality, both the Italians and the Tunisians had to grapple with how Jews fit into the legal orders of these respective places. And it wasn't a case of, well, you know, here's the origin of nationality and let's take it across the Mediterranean, but rather, be- and, and this is part of, I mean, again, this is part of why Jews are not, again, by no means the only way to do this, but a particularly kind of fruitful way to look at the history of the Mediterranean because Jews are others everywhere they go, right? It's the history of Jews as the perpetual other. Minority is a term that often gets used, although it's, you know, it's not a, it's not necessarily a term that was used at the time, but um, the idea that Jews are always sort of living in a host country in somebody else's turf means that some of these conversations can happen across different religious contexts, a different political context, um, in a way that to me was sort of, you know, 
really fruitful for thinking and rethinking this broader history. One thing that really struck me when reading the book is the fact that since the the second half of the 19th century, there've been so many other contexts where Jews, um, you know, this this Jewish minority, uh, to, to take the word that you just used, um, similarly to Nisim Shemama, um, you know, claim certain belongings in order to better their lives. Uh, one example that was really striking because it, it really... Um, Echoes the the Nisim Shimama case is the case of uh, Egyptian-born Jews in the 1950s uh, when things were going, you know, getting a little difficult for the for the Jewish community in Egypt. Um, many of them used uh, the claim that they had Livornese ancestry in order to claim Italian citizenship, uh, and the, even for those who had no known ancestry, they made the claim that um, that they had this ancestry because. Uh, the the archives there had been burnt, uh, allegedly. And so there was no proof that they did or did not have uh, Livornese citizenship, uh, ancestry rather. And so that allowed them to gain entry into Europe. And many of them then moved on to um, other to places other than, than Italy through that. But it's interesting that the Livorno, the claim to being a Livornese Jew played out, you know, almost two centuries after the Nisim Shemama case. So you see very similar strategies going on in different contexts. Um, I was also reminded of the work of Devi Mice, of course, about Sephardic Jews in the Ottoman Empire, who moved to Mexico and a bunch of other places, and how you know she used, she used the term like forging, forging identity, forging passports. So again, here claims of certain nationality or belongings, as you say, in order to um, gain access to mobility to um, and everything that's you know attendant to being in a certain place. Uh, and even today, you see this playing out uh, in Israel, for instance, where um, it's not uncommon to talk to young people who are trying to find ways to get, you know, Portuguese or Spanish passport or even German passports. Um, and a lot of those claims are are founded because, you know, their families were expelled from those places, persecuted, and they're trying to find ways to use the laws that exist to to get those those passports that will allow them to move to uh, the EU pretty much. So it's interesting that this story is not just a 19th century story. It, it really is has ongoing ramifications. Um, and I, I wonder if you can reflect a bit more about to what extent is it connected to the fact that, you know, Jews historically have navigated multiple uh, linguistic contexts and so they have access to multiple languages and as a result, perhaps more access than others to various bureaucracies or how does it connect to the sense of being a minority, which is interesting in the Israeli context, because Jews in the Israeli context are not a minority, but still those questions are still playing out. So, uh, yeah, like, I wonder what, what you see as the connections between, you know, this particular slice of Jewish history in the 19th century and what's going on, you know, until today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a really big theme, I would say some ways throughout Jewish history, but especially in the 19th century, which is the kind of era of mass migration. There's just a, you know, super heightened mobility of people all over the world, not just Jews, in part because of technology, right? You have steamships, you have railroads that are taking people across vast oceans and land masses much, much faster than they could ever go before. Telegraphs make communication much easier. And, and Jews are sort of, you know, again, I would say, um, 
not wildly different, but they're a kind of heightened example. A, a colleague of mine once, I think, said it really well. It's like Jews are like everything else, but with the volume turned up, right? And I think that's definitely true for the question of mobility. And certainly, you know, when you're thinking about um, citizenship and nationality across regions, right, a transnational history of citizenship, Jews are sort of the obvious choice because they are hypermobile. Um, and that mobility comes with having to navigate multiple legal statuses. The one thing I would say is that I think in some ways what I came to realize, that this didn't end up being a kind of central argument of the book, but it, it really struck me, um, is that in the 19th century, moving around a lot actually didn't require changing one's nationality most of the time. Most people, borders were almost completely open. Actually, the U.S. was the great exception. And in the 19th century, it was only closed to East Asian migrants. And, you know, and and certainly across the Mediterranean, people could go all the time. I mean, sometimes you sh technically should have paperwork, but most people didn't. And nobody would stop you. So Nisim Jamama, you know, he didn't need to get Italian citizenship at all. And the reason he got Italian citizenship certainly had nothing to do with identity, I think. I mean, it, that's, that's again, motivations are hard to conclude, but it's it from his own um, correspondence, it seems pretty clear that what he was worried about was getting sued uh, by various sort of, you know, former business partners. And he didn't want them to make him go to court in Tunisia. He, he had already fallen out with his former patron. He was worried that going to Tunisia would basically expose him to claims of fraud would also, you know, end up being kind of unfavorable to his case. And he wanted the case to happen in Europe. And the way to do that was to have European nationality. So it was really not about, you know, fitting in. And in that sense, it's very similar to these Egyptian Jews who later claimed Italian descent, because for them, it wasn't so much that they, as you said, many of them went on, right? André Asiman, the, the famous author, um, is perhaps the most famous, the most well-known of these examples, right? He, his family initially went to Italy, but then, of course, ended up in New York, right, in, in, in the United States. Um, there's a wonderful, my, one of my favorites, as somebody who's interested in citizenship and these questions of extraterritoriality, there's a wonderful scene um, at the very end of André Asimhan's sort of fictionalized memoir out of Egypt, um, where, you know, his, his family has stayed much later than most wealthy Jews. And finally, things are kind of crumbling and the authorities have come to their house and, you know, the police bang on the door and his aunt opens it and flashes some sort of piece of paper and says, I am a German citizen. You can't come here. And by this point, you know, there's no more extraterritoriality and her Germanness doesn't protect her. And it's kind of farcical as much of the novel is or as much of the memoir is. But um, but the point is that, you know, these sorts of uh, legal belongings were strategic, right? People use them for a particular reason. And that, that didn't mean that they didn't necessarily also sometimes feel Italian or Tunisian or French or Egyptian or whatever it was. But, you know, the reason to, to get belonging was usually for some kind of advantage that it would give you. So you naturalized for a specific purpose. Um, I would also say that the thing that I, that I was really struck by, and, and again, this changes in the 20th century, right? Borders start to close nationality becomes much more important as identity documents become pervasive, then suddenly everybody needs to belong somewhere because if you don't, then you don't have 
any standing, right? As Hannah Arendt says, nationality is the right to have rights. And, um, you know, that that's just not the case in the late 19th century. So part of what was so fun about writing this book is, is just, again, how different things were. And I, I would say maybe just, you know, to, to, to bring us a little bit more to the present, I'm not one of those historians who works on topics that are very obviously relevant for sort of present day political concerns. Um, but I do think that these sorts of stories, stories of people like Nisim Shamama and the lawsuit about his nationality, what they can do is just make us rethink what we thought was the way it is, what we thought was just the way of the world, right? Again, when I had this realization about the open borders and that you didn't really need even a passport, much less a nationality, to go from Tunisia to France, it was such a sort of, you know, really blew my mind because it's so unimaginable today to it was go a across world. the Mediterranean. It was really different. And and that, to me, is part of what is so useful about history, is just to, to change what we think is inevitable, to change what we think is natural or obvious, and to, to, to make us... And that, I think, offers possibilities for reimagining our present-day world. So, you know, today, I mean by no means has migration or nationality or citizenship ceased to be really contentious political subjects. And I don't by any means pretend to have any solutions to all of the serious problems um, that, that relate to these statuses today. I would though just say that, you know, we, we have these assumptions about borders are closed, right? Naturalization is a privilege and really hard to get most of the time, right? Unless you're very wealthy. Um, and, that just wasn't the way it was in the 19th century. And the 19th century, it was such a different world, but it wasn't that long ago. Thank you for this, Jessica. Before concluding, because sadly, 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 our time is coming to an end, I would love to hear more about the current projects that you're working on. Yeah, definitely. So the next book that I want to work on is um, not a micro history. It's a kind of ridiculously ambitious book where I, but I, I, I did get into it in part by doing this work on citizenship. I want to look at the status of extraterritoriality in the Mediterranean. You, you travel in diplomatic circles, so you'll appreciate this. Extraterritoriality basically in the 19th century was sort of akin to diplomatic immunity today, except it was for everybody, not just diplomats. So any French person in Tunisia, for instance, was essentially still sort of under the jurisdiction of France and could go to the French consulate. If they got into legal trouble, they couldn't be, um, they couldn't, they didn't have to pay taxes. They couldn't be arrested by the police. And this was this sort of ubiquitous legal reality for so many people and not just French people. So you mentioned the Jews in Egypt, right? And also there was a big Livernese um, Jewish community in Tunisia. These Jews had, and, and non-Jews too, but these Jews were Tunisian or Egyptian, but had extraterritoriality by virtue of claiming these Italian roots, whether or not they actually existed. And um, this is one of these, again, I, this is really kind of going back to this trans-Mediterranean interest. I, I've been working on extraterritoriality from various perspectives, my first book in Morocco, now in Tunisia, but I more and more have been convinced that it needs to be told as a story that united the entire Mediterranean. So that's what I'm hoping to do. So I have a lot of archival work ahead of me, which I'm both very excited about and a little daunted by, to be honest. <laughs> 
That sounds fascinating though. And I wish you good luck with this project. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to speak, really. Jessica, it's been such a pleasure to host you. Thank you for joining us today and thank you for listening. Have a great day, everyone.